0: hello everyone and uh, welcome to another episode of our podcast the edge um today we've got our O'Kane on board um it's really interesting to have him here we're really interested to have a, a conversation um and and again like always with every one of these podcasts my first question is going to be kind of where did you get started how did you get into to it security and, and how kind of as you ended up where you are here today
1: yeah i think uh just like a lot of people i started in it uh before jumping right into security so uh, uh started uh, i was at university of maryland i was majoring in mathematics and uh, needed a job and looked in the school newspaper and there was a data center right off campus that was hiring and it was a web hosting company called digiweb doesn't exist anymore they were acquired and liquidated but uh, it was thousands of web servers and uh you know a lot of sun solaris and and debian linux administration and and a cisco networking environment so i got you know my hands dirty there so in the first few years working there i learned probably you know, more than i've ever learned in the rest of my career you know it's just uh you know down and dirty having to to keep the world up you know with web hosting and that was around Y2K. So it's it's a lot has changed technology wise and and stability of systems wise. It seemed like a lot of my life was, you know, restarting Apache and stuff back then. So uh uh from then, you know, I went into, you know, other IT jobs and IT management and uh moved up to Pennsylvania from the DC area. And in Pennsylvania, there's not really any um you know, big data centers to work at. There's no real enterprise IT except maybe at a hospital. So I had to start working at managed service companies, managed service providers. And uh, so most of my experience from then on has been with small and medium-sized enterprises. They may be manufacturing companies, trucking and logistics companies, but ultimately most of the user range is like 200, 300 users. And so it's not like a 30,000 user company is, is kind of who I'm working with now. And, you know, for really the last 15 years or so has been working in those kind of environments, supporting those, those clients. And so right now I have about a thousand clients that I'm supporting that are each, you know, 300 user companies, uh, in that range. So it's, uh, it's, it's having to deal with a lot of different technology stacks, a lot of different architectures, uh, a lot of different applications and types of, 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 ways of their running their business and uh, different IT priorities too. Some of them, IT is not a priority. They're just a forklift is a priority and IT is not. So it's it's trying to uh, work that in with them. Now, about five years ago, I got involved with incident response. And as a managed service provider, we just kind of got lucky. We got a call one day from someone who had was experiencing ransomware it was really a through the insurance sales channel uh, they called us in and said hey we have a client that that has ransomware and we need you to help them rebuild and it was like 2000 web app servers for a SaaS company uh, that needed to be rebuilt and Our company, basically all hands, jumped in the conference room. It was about 50 of us, so elbow to elbow, people sitting on the floor with their laptops and stuff, and everybody rebuilding servers and getting the client up and running. And so by Monday morning, you know, so it was really three days of downtime. By Monday morning, we had them up and running with all their servers rebuilt. And uh, we had done a lot of coding and scripting to automate a lot of rebuild and stuff. But that kind of got me involved with incident response and so first it was recovery but then really the full incident response life cycle and that's really where i started getting more involved with cybersecurity. security and uh, so now it's it's incident response and ransomware um response is really half of our company now and uh, it, it accounts for a decent amount of the work we do and it also creates a pipeline for uh clients into the rest of the company because we save a company that had an incident and then they want us to continue managing their it so uh you know it's kind of uh, a a lead gen into the company per se but uh, uh yeah so we're managing it and cybersecurity, and so we're, we're doing everything from xdr you know edr MFA management, uh, some micro-segmentation, things like that, some IAM solutions, uh, down to just managing their servers and backups.
0: But I mean, you said an awful lot there, and and a lot of my friends and a lot of my kind of people that have worked for me in the past and people that have started off on a help desk that I've worked with have ended up with MSPs, and I think it's one of those places where... (sighs) My, my my missus thinks I'm crazy that I work in IT because we have to constantly learn. We have to constantly keep up to date with all this technology that changes. And some things like networking maybe haven't changed that much, but there are so many things around networking that, that do change. And she's like, can't you just get a job where you learn once and you use it forever? And I'm like, but that's I can't do that. I need to constantly keep learning. And and in my mind, I kind of working for an MSP is a, a great place to be because you do tech T- all the kind of technologies um so i mean moving on we we both me and john read read your blog that you wrote in 2020 um or, or and you talked a little bit about kind of companies and people and and choosing profits over people and all that kind of stuff and it was kind of in the middle of the pandemic and it's certainly something i know both me and john have talked about on the podcast before and we both think it's important that people are important and in this world where Amazon and a lot of these other big companies are going through major layoffs and and that kind of stuff what is your opinion on i mean what kind of advice do you give to to people to help i mean really kind of recession proof themselves and and like i said it is a big topic it's one of those where for me when i had a team of people they were my priority they their their well-being their mental health Their work life balance was something that was really critical to me. And as a manager, I was told and have been through the situation where I've had to lay off a number of people in my past. And also, I've been laid off in the past. And for somebody that really has a connection with those staff and still, I'm still friends with people I've laid off in the past, it's a real struggle. So I just wondered, like, what your opinions are.
1: Yeah. So, I think this is interesting because I wrote this in in uh, 2020 uh in in the pandemic at the time when all these uh companies including ours were considering okay how do we survive this and uh you know and, and so a lot of people were laid off and there was a, a lot of unemployment at that time and and we're we're really even though it's not because of pandemic reasons it's because of economic reasons we're in that same place right now where uh, big tech is laying off everyone and uh you know smaller companies are considering it and it it really becomes a cultural thing it it becomes a decision where the companies have to decide uh is are our people even important to us and the nature of a company is to make profit it it, it wants to Make money for its shareholders, and people are not even—they're just a resource. It's not a—it's uh, not a thing that even needs to be considered in a capitalist environment with a with a company. So Milton Friedman kind of a uh, uh, discussed that—that that really it, it's against the uh, the the concept of of capitalism for a company to invest in people to invest in uh you know corporate social responsibility programs a charity anything like that that the purpose of a company is to make money so and that that may be true but a company runs on its people and especially in IT and security where our people are extremely valuable to us and you know even more than profit to an extent you know the stakeholders uh, shareholders may may believe otherwise and may put a lot of pressure on us to do layoffs because they see diminishing returns and they see that their uh, you know their value is going down and and that they're not making as much profit this year but When you're leading a team of of security experts, IT experts, people that have amazing skills in uh, the organization and and are bringing great value to you, you don't want to lay them off. And even the people that are starting off, you're thinking about the amount of investment and the potential that they have in your future in, in the company. And even somebody who's, you know, only has two or three years of experience in could be your superstar next year, could be your superstar in, in three years. And the, the fact that we're thinking of of laying them off because they uh the, the economy is in a downturn is uh is really a you know a sad thing. So in my mind, people should be the last thing to cut. Um, I need to look at contracts where I can cut other expenses, uh, cut other things and try to make a way to keep everybody on board. And that will pay dividends because the people then will work harder and the people then will appreciate that, that, you know, we've saved them, uh, that kind of thing. And that, that are, they are the most important thing to us. And so Making that decision for the people is a hard decision for the company to make because it's it's really against the interests of the company um, in order to, you know, keep those people on board. But, you know, almost immediately, you're going to see, a, you know, productivity gains as a result. You're going to see loyalty increased. You know, people that were afraid of losing their job and, and looking at LinkedIn jobs and Indeed, you know, yeah. are now... Focused on what can we do to help the company survive this part of 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 the economy, and how do we help the company grow? Because now you know that your not your job is not at risk. You're going to be along for the ride. What can I do to help the company survive? And so th- that's a, a conscious decision the companies are having to make in order to, um, you know, keep those people on board and in order to grow through this i think that uh, doing those layoffs although you're seeing immediate cost reduction uh is just going to impact your brand negatively um you know nobody's going to want to go work for your company now after seeing that you've just laid off all these people people that are working there want to leave and they're scared and they're looking at job ads uh, so it's it's just a negative thing uh cutting people first so uh the problem is that companies aren't aren't incentivized to retain people and it has to be a conscious decision that the people that that managers and executives at a company have to make to say okay it doesn't matter that we're going to lose a little bit of money um we'll get it back the most important thing right now is to keep our people so that that that's a decision that I've had to make and I had to make during covid and I'm sure I'm going to have to make it again here soon uh but uh it's uh, it's a conscious decision that goes against the nature of capitalism and it's it's really making an investment in your people.
2: Yeah, I think to your point um you know that in in my mind Almost, you know, looking at cutting people, and, and there are some people that uh, you know maybe you have a business unit that isn't successful, uh, maybe there's uh, you know a, a market that's uh, not you're not gaining in. But what I've seen in a downturn and the companies that I've worked for in the past, um, I had the fortune of of having some smart leadership, and they saw it as a downturn as an opportunity they saw it as an you know this is our chance to double down on some markets that maybe we are not as successful in or there's a new market to explore um let's make some investments let's see what happens uh because we know our competition is going to run the traditional playbook and that's you know cutting people and and uh, slowing down uh whereas in a downturn you can actually hit the accelerator and and come out of this situation stronger of course you know, if if you've got a good balance sheet, it it makes life a lot easier. But you can make some some strong bets and and come out the other side. I wanted to hit reverse two and go back to uh, ransomware. Um, I had the the fortune of being at a conference in San Francisco last week, and we actually did a it was interesting. Um, it was a session, and we did a tabletop exercise with a, a number of CISOs, and um, I was kind of surprised uh, with the outcome. Uh, That uh, these CISOs and and these were you know large companies that uh, were involved in this. Um, At the end of the day, it was it was kind of like choose your own adventure. So uh, you were notified, hey, something happened. There was a compromise. Uh, Some identity was maybe leaked out. Um, You have some infected machines. What are you going to do? So on and so forth. But at the end of the exercise, uh, the majority of the CISOs decided to pay the ransom, which. I felt was interesting. Um, What are you seeing, you know, and and I'd really, you know, be interested to see if that's the case, um, as well as uh, what are some of the uh, best, I guess, recommendations to prevent uh, ransomware from, you know, entering your network and, you know, getting into your backups and so on and so forth.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, And let me... Kind of preempt this by saying that most of the ransomware jobs we get are large enterprise. Uh, so we're getting calls from insurance companies, uh, saying that they have a company that has ransomware, and it's usually a very large company. It's usually a worldwide brand, uh, somebody that's in every mall, uh, somebody that is you know a, a brand that everybody's very familiar with. So uh, these are the environments that we're doing ransomware recovery on, and so it's it's a little bit different from our normal SMB uh, client base, and uh, it, so it makes it a little interesting when we do bring them on as managed clients, then we have this. The, these couple large enterprises, alongside of our small businesses, but uh, what I'm finding with a lot of uh, large enterprises, is they've made a lot of investments in DR, and uh, you know they have the SANS that are replicated. They have a DR site, and they have a, a, another replica sand over there, uh, things like that. And uh, the attacker will drop QuackBot or Emotet, grab your creds and or they're, they'll fish the admin and get the creds and gain access to those devices they'll turn off replication between your sands they'll turn off your sand snapshotting and so the the quick bounce back that the enterprise is expecting to be able to do because of these millions of dollars that they've invested in their sand technology they're not able to do and so then their failback then is okay, let's let's use Veeam backup or Commvault or Zerto or whatever. And the attacker is always grabbing those and, and encrypting those as well. So that leaves enterprises in a place where they have no restore path other than either rebuild or pay the ransom. And uh, you know, I've had them pay the ransom and then we just use the, the key to decrypt their backups. And then we restore from their backups um, once that we've decrypted their their backups. But uh, it's very common for uh, large corporations to pay the ransom right now. Uh, the cost of downtime is often a lot higher than the cost of paying that ransom. And uh, I've seen ransoms as high as $50 million um but most are not most are you know 1 million or 2 million and in the face of weeks of downtime for rebuilding their entire infrastructure um you know it it it's an easy choice for most corporations to just pay the ransom um ethically you know is it the right thing to do no you're giving money to this and you're really uh continuing to feed this problem but uh you know the from the company's perspective they're looking at at just dollars of downtime and uh and it, it's easier just to pay the ransom at that point uh, so where that really kind of it, it shows some glaring architectural problems uh, most corporations even though you would think that they would because they're very large brands uh, aren't segmented properly so the blast radius is really the whole company um when they get ransomware the attacker is able to get everywhere and that is really it, it It has really gotten me involved with zero trust as a result because i'm seeing just that someone can get in with the janitor's creds do a privilege escalation from that machine and then get access to everything in the network and uh, so you wonder okay sure that the janitor didn't have permissions but there was privilege escalation that was run on this machine so now this the attacker has access to anything that that an administrator would have access to um but now that's the whole network because there's no segmentation there's no control over what and when there's no just-in-time kind of uh, uh privilege access management solution or anything like that in place so um as a result you know is complete devastation almost every time i'm not seeing a ransomware where it's uh you know only one only hr is affected only finance is affected i'm seeing ransomware where it's it's completely burned down every workstation every server you know the data stores everything is completely encrypted and uh, to me that just shouts you know segmentation problems and and excessive permissions and excessive trust within the network. So some of the advice that I've given uh, companies as a result of this, and some of these are worldwide companies that have done a lot of acquisitions and M&A of a lot of other companies. And they've kind of, uh, they acquire another company or another brand, and then they just create a a domain trust and then a VPN tunnel to their site. And uh, so some of the things that I'm really kind of trying to have them look at is you know user access reviews and user account audits uh during that process and continually uh you know to make sure that nobody has excessive permissions uh in your domain trust it should not just be a two-way trust you know blind um, across so everybody has permissions to everything uh, but also that vpn connection a VPN connection. A lot of times, when people set up a VPN connection, whether it's Cisco, Palo, um, Fortinet, uh, they're really trusting that connection. It's it, if that if the traffic's coming over a VPN, it has full rights to the network, just as everyone else does. And uh, so, locking that VPN connection down to specific hosts is one thing, but also inspecting that traffic. Is another thing. Most people aren't putting their, their VPN traffic through inspection, through their IDS, through their um, you know, their malware detection systems and things like that through their firewall. Um, so making sure that they're not considered those VPNs aren't considered trusted connections. And same thing with the DR site. Uh, a lot of people, their DR site, they have a VPN to their DR site. I'm seeing the attack come in through the DR site. Um, so The DR site's affected, the attacker got in through like an exchange server that's open on the DR site, and and then they come and get your production network. Um, So there there needs to be more control there, whether it's, uh, you know, via segmentation and ACLs, whether it's um, inspection of traffic, uh, you know, whether it's more monitoring or whether it's it's zero trust network access and, and, uh, you know, just limiting what people are able to access when. Uh, is is really uh, kind of fundamental for the solution here and it's it's not one thing it's all of these things you know it's it's they need to employ these segmentation solutions they need to employ more IAM control over (laughs) what people are able to access and they are you know they need to do a, a lot in respect to deploying basic hygiene as well mfa things like that um you know enterprise i also see is usually not very well patched and a lot of times they have 2008 servers running critical apps that they've had for the last 10 years and uh they're never going to upgrade those servers they're never going to move off of that app it's a it's a critical app now so uh you know the servers are unpatched. they have a lot of end-of-life systems but they're not segmenting those off and protecting them and so they're just vulnerable pieces of of technology that are um in the stack now i understand why they're afraid to patch um up to a point because you know downtime is expensive and you know a bad patch or just downtime to patch can be expensive um so what i think a lot of companies that are in that situation if they're not going to patch they need to start segmenting those off and saying okay this critical app that's running on this old stuff that is in a vulnerable situation we need to make sure that it's not accessible from the rest of the network you know that we're not you know we're able to access it via whatever protocol we need to access that critical app via but uh it's not just open to the world and uh, uh you know that is is one of the, the big things that I'm saying also is you'll, I'll do a, a ransomware recovery and there'll be thousands of servers that are, you know, sent OS boxes from 15 years ago that have never been patched. And, um, and so they have all the vulnerabilities that have accumulated over the last 15 years.
0: I think to be honest, you've just talked about my autobiography. <laughs> um, it feels like, feels like the life I've led for 25 years. So. I I, I, would, I mean, I've spoke to this before on, on on the podcast, but I feel like 25 years of my career, I've done mergers and acquisitions, I've opened new sites, I've plugged stuff together, and I feel like I'm partly responsible for the fact that all those companies that I've ever worked for had these kind of wide open networks and kind of, and I, and I'd like to say, I didn't know any different. And there was no such thing as zero trust. But obviously, as you've known, if you listen to our other podcasts, that's not true. It was invented ages ago and just no one's done anything about it for 20 years or whatever it is. Um, I, mean, I mean, there's a lot of information in there. I mean, I could talk for you for hours about that. But w- one of the the key questions I have really is I've seen over the last however many years since the start of the pandemic, the innovation is is massively increased. Um, but also users and data and, and, and kind of applications are now everywhere. And there was a process when people started to move out to the cloud, but it feels like pandemic came along, everybody went home, everybody implemented systems that they probably would have taken years to review and check and make sure they were secure. So now we've got all these people sat at home or in a hybrid workforce now. And we we we've got systems that, are designed for the castle and moat design that we're no longer in we're no longer in that castle surrounded by a moat um i have got snow all the way around my house today which stopped people getting in but we're no longer castle and moat um i'd really be interested to know if you've seen a shift i mean we we hear a lot about ransomware being on the increase but have you seen people start to look at things like sassy and ssc and all of these new technologies here if you if you seen people start making those strategic decisions to go down that route of zero trust and to start to use all these things or are are or, or are people still a little bit frightened about them being new?
1: At the enterprise level, yes. Um so people are talking to the big vendors uh, for SASE solutions and for SSE solutions. Um I think at SMB or even SME, you know medium-sized companies aren't even considering it and it may I think it's because of vendor focus honestly um uh, vendors are going to focus on the big fish rather than the smaller market and as someone who is at uh, a MSP it's actually hard for me to acquire that technology for small businesses um, there's a uh, most solution providers, most vendors out there are providing solutions that are really aimed towards that that larger market. So it's hard for me to equip the smaller companies. But on ransomware events, uh, I'm not seeing it, but that may be why they have ransomware. Um, so uh, you know, if they have the solution in place, I might not be seeing them. But uh, on a lot of them, it is a part of their enterprise roadmap. Uh, you know it's on the board that they're going to implement this solution Uh, and it was supposed to be next quarter, but now they have ransomware. So this is all being pushed back. Um, So that is, uh, that is something that enterprise is moving towards and talking about. But yeah, I think there's a huge division right now in the marketplace between uh, what's available for the enterprise and what's available for everybody else. And uh, for instance, if I wanted to uh, get and deploy sassy or, or sse technology um for a three-person shop who would i go to um that kind of thing like there's there's solutions where i can get a great price if i have a 50000 user company but uh it, it's it's definitely harder at the lower end of the market and i have some critical infrastructure clients that are Considered small and medium-sized enterprise, they're, you know, whether it's water treatment plants, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's you know hospitals and healthcare, you know, they they're they're just smaller companies, and uh, you know, I'm trying to find the right solutions for them, and that's really what's brought me into getting involved with uh, the CSA Zero Trust Working Group because I'm I'm really trying to discover. How can I implement these solutions for the small and medium-sized businesses? So but uh, th- yeah, enterprise is rolling it out though. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think there's kind of two points you've made there. And and I mean, obviously I've come from manufacturing background. Um, and we had supply chain upwards and downwards, and that supply chain would have been, it could have been five people based in an office, could be three people based in an office. And I mean I had these conversations at boardroom level all the time where it's like we might be strong but anywhere in that supply chain those people of all different sizes it only takes that one person doing that one thing if that one person gets compromised and he's coming in on a VPN and we trust him or he comes on the network and we trust him so so th- that's one of the things I, I wanted to pick up on and and the other thing is obviously we spoke to John Kindervag I mean we we and we've spoken to people from like Paul Simmons and people like that. And and I like what you're saying, that because for me, zero trust isn't you just go and buy a product off of a shelf, it's a strategy. And actually, I, I read an article today that talks about how you can start to think about it no matter what size your company is. Now, obviously, the difficulty is if you determine as part of your strategy, you need to do something that involves a product, and you're a five-user company, you may well struggle. Um, But I I fundamentally think we're going to need to start thinking about doing this across every company at every size, because otherwise, instead of attacking the 50,000-user company that's paid hundreds of millions to secure themselves, they'll do something else. They'll attack that one-person company, or they'll attack the two-person company, or they'll attack somewhere in that supply chain, and that'll be it, it'll be done um but yeah I mean so so we've talked a lot of, about tech um team cultures and and leaders and, and all of those kind of things I'd like to talk a little bit about that because uh, over the years I've always had a debate on whether I was a manager or a leader and I always wanted to see myself as a leader in fact not I didn't want to see myself as a leader I want people to see me as a leader and not as a manager I see a manager as someone that has the carrot and the stick. And that person that kind of tells you off when you're being naughty or or bribes you kind of with the carrot when you when you when they want you to be good. I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to be leading from the front. And and I know a lot of my old team listen to this and and I hope they agree that I said that that I kind of do that. I would be in the trenches with people and and, and those kind of things. But I think for a lot of large companies there's a disconnect between the feet on the ground and the people making the strategic decisions. And and John, I know you you obviously work for a large company, a lot longer than where I worked. And maybe this is a question for you as well, but I just, we talked a little bit about people at the, at the start of this podcast and how important people are. And, and both of us, both me and John think that is definitely the case that people are key, but what can, the leaders do to formulate a culture that makes people kind of go the extra mile, in your opinion.
2: Are you asking me?
0: I, okay, John, <laughs> you go first. No,
2: um actually I wanted to, to flip it around too. Uh you, you know, are you you I read your blog and you, you talked a lot about DevOps and, and what that meant to you when you you know got introduced to the topic. And I think you know, DevOps in a way, obviously it's a, it's a a relationship between developers and operations, but I think there's a, you know, to Jay's point, there's a, there's a wider, uh, a point here. And, and, um, you know, talked a lot about brings in the brings in the idea of around servant leadership, and um, how important that is to you know disconnect yourself from the past, which was command and control, to more of um, you know being a coach, helping people out, um, being a more we than I. And um, I know you know you wrote about DevOps, but uh, you know if you could kind of answer the question in in that sense, uh, I, I think mm-hmm. that would be really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, you know Peter Drucker's quote that people often repeat: "The culture eats strategy for breakfast." Uh, that is is absolutely true, and I think DevOps actually is a culture as well. It's a DevOps mindset to apply to a company. Uh, a lot of people, you know, it started with development and operations and figuring really how to bridge that gap. And, and make that more effective and more efficient. But it applies to everywhere in the business. and you know, designing multidisciplinary teams so that you can accomplish that same kind of results uh, within the company is is something that've I've really excelled at doing is saying, okay, here's somebody from billing, here's somebody from sales, here's somebody from ops. Come together and make the solution so you can take from quote to revenue, faster through sales ops and billing you know and plus you have a fast feedback loop then uh but for me that's that's impossible at a company where you have strict hierarchy and strict tiers and strict reporting relationships uh because it it requires matrix reporting relationships it requires okay i'm 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 reporting to my team even though i'm in billing which is on this other part of the org chart and this is i'm 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 responsible for these outcomes for my team which even though i'm a part of it ops which is this other part of the org chart and uh where that really that can't happen if there's that rigid um, hierarchy and it can't happen if you don't enable and empower the people to actually work. Um, So in addition to creating that small team, let's say it's DevOps um, that is with development and operations, you know, kind of a mixed group of people that are working together for these outcomes. If they don't have the power to make decisions and to, uh, make differences and make changes, then um, they they won't get anywhere and they'll still feel just as hamstrung as they would if they were trapped in the corner in dev or in a in corner in IT ops. So uh, where culture meets this is really it's an empowering your people to be able to do something. And as far as leadership versus management, I'm a horrible manager. When I have to sit there and micromanage people about um, giving them specific tasks and 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 then giving them metrics around this and and judging them based on this and and really just being on people all the time, I fail doing that. And I've actually you know run into problems where um, you know people above me have expected me to manage like that. and I will not you know that's just not how i do it i'm more the guy who grabs the flag and starts running down the field and expects everybody to start chasing me and and go with me and and i will not detail unless somebody's lost and needs to know how to implement something i'm not going to force them to do it some certain way i figure out i figure that i'm supposed to give them the what and the why and they can figure out the how and devops the idea of it is i'm putting smart people in a group together and I'm empowering them to figure out that how. Their outcome is, okay, I need to get this turnaround time. I need to get this product deployed faster. I need to, you know, have less billing errors. I need to increase sales flow by giving them a quote quotation tool that's automatic and, and you know, may... You know, when the salesperson quotes something, if it's signed, actually implements the solution without any touch from IT ops, uh, things like that. Uh, being able to do that, I just need to give them the outcome. And, you know, this is what I'm looking for, guys, make this happen. And and then empower them to be able to do what it takes to to do that. That's, that's where I think this culture blends in with that leadership. And... And so then my role then goes from being a sitting there yelling at somebody from for not hitting metrics and things like that to saying, OK, what what can I do to unblock this? What can I do to, to help? Oh, you need more people on your team. Oh, you need this technology. Oh, you need you know me to talk to this vendor or, uh, you know, so and so from human resources isn't working with you. Let me unblock that for you. Uh, you know, then my job is is to support them rather than to, uh, you know, force them to do it my way. And so, yeah, that, that carrot and the stick I've been always horrible with. I, I know that people are different. So everybody has different motivators and coming up with carrots that are appropriate for everybody is always really hard for me to think about. Like I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to sit there and, and come up with a appropriate stick for people. Um, (laughs) I should just, you know, be able to say, Hey, let's do this together. Let's build something great, lead the way. And everybody kind of follows. And if it's a bad idea, they're not going to follow. And that's the feedback I get. Um, you know, that the team's going the other direction. It's probably cause it's a bad idea. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm completely open to feedback that I just did something that wasn't right. also. So it's, uh, you know, I have a ton of ideas every day and maybe a third of them are great. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, I need people to tell me that that's not a great idea. And, you know, being able to have that feedback loop with the team, you know, is also a DevOps principle that that, you know, I think that is my secret sauce is being able to create those feedback loops is saying, okay, DevOps here, you need to be able to get feedback directly from, you know, the support team. You need to be able to get feedback directly from the sales team. You need to be able to get feedback directly from the customer, Uh, things like that so that we can do a fast turnaround time on improvement. And to me, any group in the company needs to have those feedback loops. It's not something that's limited to DevOps. It's, It's something that if we're going to improve quickly and learn from our mistakes, those feedback loops have to be in place. But that's really how I'm approaching leadership and is, uh, you know, give somebody a great idea. If they have a great idea, support the great idea. Um, You know, but if I have a great idea, hopefully somebody can run with it. You know, if they don't understand it, then that's my fault. Um, But, you know, that's, I'm not going to drive management at somebody. And I'm expecting that I have smart people that are able to run with it.
2: To any of the listeners out there that are looking to implement SASE, SSE, Zero Trust, just hit the rewind button about five minutes and listen to what Art said. I mean, to be successful and to be able to implement these technologies, you've got to get a team that's uh, going across silos. You've got to break down the silos. You've got to get a network person, a security person, an operations person, um, maybe even somebody from procurement. And that's how you're going to be successful in implementing these technologies. It's not about security mandating SSE or SASE being mandated by the network folks or, you know, zero trust. That's a strategy. It it crosses business boundaries. So um, I'm right behind you there, Art. That was that was insightful.
0: Yeah, I always found my role as a as a kind of a manager was to be an enabler for my team and also protect them if things went wrong. Um and and that's what you said is it's pretty much those things, right? So we're, we're we're slowly running out of time. It's been great talking to you. Um, but i I've, I thought before we wrap up, we'll ask you some kind of more fun questions. Um so the first one is. What's your favorite winter activity? And the reason I ask that is because it snowed here yesterday, and it's cold. And my favorite winter activity is not going outside. Um, but I'd be interested what yours was.
1: So Jay, I really agree with you there. Um, I hate winter. I hate being cold. Uh, people are always like, "Well, you can put on more clothes." No, I'm bundled up then and completely uncomfortable, and and I'm still cold. Like, there's I, I don't go skiing, snowboarding. I'm just a grinch. Like with wintertime I just want it to be done with so I'm considering starting migrating you know uh so you know spend the winter in the south so it's I never actually experienced the pain of the cold anymore
0: so how cold does it get where you
1: are yeah I mean zero degrees Fahrenheit uh, a lot um you know sometimes it's negative but uh it's you know It's not as cold as if I was in Canada or something. So it's it's, but there's usually a decent amount of snow where I am, Uh, right where I am. uh, I tend to get snowed in for about five weeks a year. So it's not super cold, but it's it's it'll dump like three, four feet of snow, and then another foot, and then another foot. Like, uh, you know, I get a decent amount of snow.
0: So so it sounds to me like you're much more of a summer person. So let's let's flip it and say, what's your favorite summer activity?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I bought this small farm on top of a mountain, uh, just so I could like disconnect from IT and go out and, and do outdoorsy stuff. And so uh, it used to be a Christmas tree farm. Now I'm kind of planting fruit trees and doing an orchard thing. Uh, but being outside and, and working outside in the summertime, I feel like I should, in my next life, you know i should be a landscaper or something like that it's uh, just being outside in the sun is yeah is what i really enjoy
0: so i think another one is very close to my heart and close to john's heart um what's the best meal you've ever eaten
1: <laughs> okay so ever eaten hmm well yes uh I, that one's a tough one recently i had a, a ribeye roast for thanksgiving Oh, uh, that was much better than turkey. Um, I I'll never do a turkey again. Um, ten pounds of rib ribeye was amazing. Um, as far as the best I've ever eaten, um, there's you know, I love French restaurants and French cuisine, and uh, you know, so I'm I really love like Creole and Cajun food and stuff. So like, uh, you know, that kind of food is just so packed with flavor and delicious that. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how I survive eating, you know, the central Pennsylvania Dutch food when there's so much flavor in like New Orleans type food or French food.
0: See, that's a place I've never been, New Orleans. I mean, I I like the Cajun food. It's very, very limited here in the UK. Um, I mean, I could definitely talk about food uh, all day long. Um, actually,
2: actually, actually, New Orleans was one of the best. Um... Meals I ate, I've eaten. I went to uh, Emeralds uh, down in the, the French Quarter. And uh, surprisingly enough, I was like, hey, uh, I was at the bar because I was there by myself. I think it was like a Cisco Live event or something like that, that was in New Orleans. And I said, hey, what should I have? And he's like, Portobello mushroom steak. I'm like, okay, bring it on. It was amazing. Uh, and, and, and I wasn't a big portobello person, but after that I've, I've made it three or four times and not as good as, as, as at Emerald's, but, uh, that's, if it's done right, it's, it's really good.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. A few years ago, I, uh, my wife and I took our Christmas bonuses and went down to New Orleans and it, we just spent Christmas there and went walking around the French Quarter seeing the sites and going restaurant to restaurant, just eating everywhere. And, you know, four star restaurants, really nice restaurants. It's like we were, we were using, you know, food apps and trying to find out where the best restaurants were and just going to those. And, uh, you know, it was such rich and phenomenal food. It's it's like now anytime there's a conference or something there, I'm like, I'm going to that one, um, <laughs> you know, we got to make it to new Orleans
0: that's gonna to have to be where our SSE forum conference is right John
1: there you go there you go
0: so okay one final question before we let you go um what's the best book you've read in the last six months
1: okay yeah uh, project zero trust by George Finney um that one you know I love books like the goal Phoenix Project unicorn project things that are are fiction books but teach you something. And when I was really trying to get a hold of zero trust in my brain, you know, I was looking at kinder Bog stuff and, and, you know, all the materials out there And this just makes you want to sit there and poke your eyes out with a pencil. Um, I was trying to really figure out how do I do this? And how do I think about this? And I read project zero trust and I'm like, oh, that's easy. Um, so it, it's, you know, this book really lays out a story. Of, of, of an incident that a company went through but it's using it as a teaching model oh and you have it right there uh people they can't see the screen um he just showed that he has jay has the book on his desk but uh it it, it uses an incident as a teaching model uh to teach zero trust principles and uh, i think that that has you know, it's obviously changed the last six months of my life, but it's a, uh, it's a, uh, I think that it is going to help a lot of people understand really what a protect surface is, what a DAS element is, and start thinking about zero trust. And, and so I'm doing like I did with Phoenix Project when it came out. Um, I bought a million copies and started giving it to all my friends and forcing everybody to read it. And, and I became a real evangelist for Phoenix Project. Now I'm doing the same for Project Zero Trust.
0: So George came on one of our podcasts. If you've not had a chance to listen to it, George was one of uh, the guests on our Breaking Down Zero Trust podcast series. Um, so, yes, we have signed books from from George and we're hoping to do an event with him coming up soon. So the book's definitely really good. I've not read the Phoenix Projects, John. And I, I know, see, I I knew the face you were going to pull when I said that I will get around to reading it. Um, I can't thank you enough art from coming on. It's been great. Um, really some info, insightful comments and, and some good topics we definitely like you to come back and come on again because i think we could easily talk for another 30 minutes 45 minutes an hour um anything from you john just before we wrap up
2: no it's been a very insightful conversation um love the knowledge bombs around uh, ransomware uh, with some great insight as well as um, team dynamics and leadership so thank you art really appreciate it
1: thanks so much guys